Hi, ECC family. I'm recording this message today, Tuesday, March 17th. So have, as many of you have seen in the, through the prayer email, my father, Gene Kincannon, passed away Sunday evening. My dad was 92 years old, and while, I, while I'm obviously grieving, me and my family are grieving his loss, I also know my dad was a person of faith. And I'm confident that he is in the presence of Jesus even now, and for that I rejoice. So many of you have already reached out to me to express your condolences and your care for my family, and I'm grateful to you, my church family. So this sermon today is about loving God and loving others, something that so many of you really already get in so many ways, and you've shown me that love in the past, so I want to say thank you for that. So as I preach this, I want to encourage you to interact with our sermon and, and each other through the comments and the emojis that are available on Facebook Live. I, w- I was watching the interaction last Sunday, and at one point I attempted to uh, enlarge my, the image of the stream on my computer, and I accidentally hit the angry face emoji. And what made it worse was I was logged in as an administrator from the, EC- from e- the ECC Facebook page, so I'm afraid it made it look like ECC was angry about the live stream. <laughs> ECC was not angry. It was just a demonstration of the administrator, administrative pastor's social media ineptitude. <laughs> so the interactions are encouraged, and if there are any angry faces this morning, we're going to assume that it's just really the location of that, that emoji in the lower right corner of Facebook Live. So let's get started this morning. So different personalities have varying tolerances for conflict. There's probably some that are watching uh, this morning who actually like conflict. Some people love a good debate, even one that escalates. And I'm sure there's also many watching this morning who don't like conflict. It makes you feel uncomfortable. When people are disputing or contending, you don't want to grab popcorn and enjoy the show. You just want to leave the room. For many, when you're confronted or you're the one who has to confront, you may describe, maybe you describe your primary motivating feeling as a desire to get that tension over with as quick as possible and to get on to something else. Now, personally, I'm kind of a mixed bag. I probably enjoyed conflict a bit too much in my younger days, especially as it related to some of my unhealthy competitiveness. But lately, I kind of find myself more in the latter camp. Uh, In fact, in one of my job evaluations, when I worked in healthcare, my supervisor commented regarding my leadership. She said, Kurt, you know what you are? You're a peacemaker. One of my first thought was, that's so bad. I mean, thinking of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called children of God. But I knew that really wasn't her context when she said it. Her comment was neither solely a a criticism or a compliment. It It was an observation. She knew me well enough and I knew her well enough to know that there was both good and bad in that comment. But here's, here's another way to ask the question. You know, the Bible, particularly the Gospels, give us many stories of Jesus having conflict with others, mainly the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests. But there are also sharp words for Jesus' own disciples and even his family members at times. So we encounter the, these, these confrontations in all the Gospels, but we especially encounter them in Mark. In the past couple of weeks, Stacy has referenced some of these. Now, when we read of Jesus' confrontations in the Bible, is your primary reaction, yeah, go get him, Jesus. I love it. Let me have a piece of him, too. Or do you find yourself maybe just a bit fatigued and saddened, particularly with Jesus' opponents? You know, why can't they just understand Jesus? Why can't there be peace? Well, our text this morning comes in the middle 
of a lengthy string of conflicts with the Jewish leaders. And it ends in what one commentator called an island of reconciliation in a sea of hostility. Isn't that poetic? An island of reconciliation in a sea of hostility. I'm, some of you are saying, yes, Lord, put me on that island right now. By the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jewish people, and more specifically Judaism, contained 613 laws. 248 of these laws contained positive elements, things that you should do. 365 were negative or prohibitions on things you shouldn't do. That's one for every day of the year. I think there's value in, for us to understand the Jewish world and, the, and, and those laws. So for my sermon, I'd like to take a deeper dive into all 613 laws this morning. A second thought, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. Our text today, Jesus is asked to define the most important commandment in the law. And he's asked in a very real sense to define what matters. What matters? What's the most important, what, what is the most important thing for those of us who want to be faithful to God? And the good news for us this morning is that Jesus distills all this law and prophets down into two commandments. These two commandments are what we uh, call, often call the great commandment. The good news is, uh, unlike faithful Jews prior to the coming of Christ, we don't have to wade through 613 commandments and laws to find out how to be faithful. If you're a Christ follower and you're wondering what God expects from you in this relationship, the good news is that it's very simplified for us. The, our, our good news this morning is that our direction for faithfulness is spelled out in the great commandment, and through following it, our lives can have purpose. So, as you heard read earlier this morning, our passage is a conversation between Jesus and a scribe. And this conversation takes place during the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And as we've covered, he's recently entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's gone to the temple. He's looked around that first evening. He headed back out to the village of Bethany with his disciples for the night. The next day... He returns to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple, driving out the money changers and those who were selling animals for sacrifices. He also cursed the fig tree, and that tree has subsequently withered, which was symbolic of the coming judgment on Israel. And he's began to field questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herodians, the teachers of the law and the elders, all the religious and political leaders of that of his day. And we know that all this conflict builds. And eventually leads to Jesus' arrest at his crucifixion. And all these things are in full swing by the time we get to our passage this morning. So these events that lead up to our passage this morning, have been a, they've been a bit of a shootout. They have been contentious. In the first part of chapter 12 alone, Jesus has handled questions about his authority to even do these things. Questions about paying taxes. Questions about marriage as it relates to the resurrection of the dead. And all these questions get us to our passage this morning a teacher of the law, or a scribe, hears Jesus' good answer. He likes what he hears, so he poses another question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Well, as many of you know, I was in Israel last month. We traveled, when we traveled around Israel, um, our group and our group leader continually would pull up a map, and we would talk about what we would call the playing board. So let's talk about the playing board for what happens in our text today. Uh, so we're in the last week of, of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, three weeks ago, Pastor Stacy preached on the triumphal entry as found in Mark 11, and we determined that Jesus 
was based out of Bethany. Bethany is on the other side of the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. Now here's a picture of the Mount of Olives that I shot from Jerusalem. Okay, Bethany is on the other side of that mountain. So Jesus' approximate two-mile commute was over that mountain, down into the Kidron Valley, uh, and then back up out of that valley to enter into the temple. Now here is a picture of the Temple Mount today. Uh, today the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim mosque, stands approximately where the temple stood in the first century. Now this picture is a picture of a model outside the Israel Museum of what the second temple would have looked like to Jesus as he walked down from the Mount of Olives. So this, this is the court of the Gentiles out here. Uh, this would be the court of women. Uh, this would be the holy place. And then the most holy place would be in, in here. Um, here I've zoomed in uh, on, the, on, the, on what are the temple courts. Now my first thought is, I, doesn't that look realistic? I hope it comes across in the video that way. Uh, to me, if I didn't tell you that was a model, you might think I went back in time to snap a picture. But let's make sure we understand the context. All this discourse between Jesus and the chief priest and the teachers of the law happened in the temple courts. Now, where exactly? It could have been any of these areas, but I'm guessing it was probably in here. Jesus, as a, as a Jewish man, could have entered here, and the chief priests and the scribes could have been in there, would have been in there as well. So wherever it was, this particular teacher or scribe approaches Jesus after hearing this debate. Verse 28 states he noticed Jesus is giving a good answer, so he asked his question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important, the teacher asked. And so in answering, Jesus combines two passages. The first part of the answer about love of God comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And it's a prayer known as the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word for hear or listen, which is the first word in the verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now the Shema was a prayer recited by pious Jews in the morning and in the, in, in the evening each day. Now being a good Jew, Jesus would have done this as well. Now everyone listening to Jesus answer this question would have known this. I'm guessing that heads were probably bob, were bobbing or nodding when he said that. But then Jesus adds to this by attaching another verse from the book of Leviticus 19.18. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater to these than these. So Jesus alters the prayer said by pious Jews every day. And by doing this, he reshapes what it means to be both a faithful Jew and a faithful follower of the Messiah. Now the scribe reacts positive, positively to Jesus adding Leviticus 19 as the second commandment. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right, saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. Now, in all fairness, the scribe's positive reaction to combining these two Old Testament verses isn't completely surprising. We have existing texts from Jewish leaders who wrote and taught prior to Jesus and some of them also combine these two verses. So not everything that Jesus says is completely new, nor should we expect it to be. He was Jewish, after all, and he would have been influenced by Jewish tradition. But we don't have to go very far in Jesus' teaching, however, to know that when he uses the word neighbor, he's using a much broader definition. Luke 10 records Jesus having another exchange with a scribe. And in this case, it's the scribe 
in that conversation who sums up the law with the same combination of the Shema and Leviticus 19.18. And Jesus agrees with the scribe, scribe, but then the scribe asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan solely for the purpose of defining or answering that question as to who are our neighbors. And in that parable, the definition of neighbor is clearly broadened beyond Jewish people to include non-Jews. Now, elsewhere, Jesus pushes this definition even further. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, now we are to love not only our neighbors, but our enemies as well. So neighbor for Jesus means everyone. You, you can boil this whole commandment down into love God, love all people. Loving our neighbors is a theme that continues, though, through our New Testament. The, the Apostle Paul, for example, wrote in Romans 13, 8 and 9, let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt of love to one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or whatever other command there is, there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice that that Paul leaves out the first part of Jesus' commandment, where we're told to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul sums up the whole law using only the last part of the statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says exactly the same thing elsewhere in Galatians 5.14. And James, in his letter, says something very similar. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So these latter New Testament passages, in these latter passages, the love of God is assumed. It's almost as if when we truly love our neighbors as we love ourselves, we are in fact loving God. Love for God is demonstrated, it's even proven in our love for others. So as we already stated, the scribe likes Jesus' summary of the great commandment. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right by saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Whoa! Did you catch that? He changed what Jesus said at the last. Instead of just saying that this commandment was greater than all other commandments, he says it's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe said this. He says not only is it more important to love God and others over and above every other commandment, it's even more important than the entire sacrificial system of worship that's happening in the temple. I mean, think for a minute who the scribe is, and what he is saying, and where he is saying it. Essentially, he's acknowledging that this community of of followers of Jesus can fulfill the will of God expressed in the commandments without participating in the Jewish sacrificial system. I mean, I gotta wonder if there were other scribes and teachers around that heard him say this. He says loving God and loving others is more important than the religious rituals. I think for a scribe to say this about the Jewish sacrificial system is amazing. And Jesus likes his answer. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now scholars differ on the interpretation of what exactly Jesus is saying there. Do we interpret this as Jesus saying something like, 
hey, close but no cigar, Mr. Scribe? Or is he saying, hey, my friend, you're almost there. I lean toward the latter interpretation. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates verse 34 as, you're almost there, right on the border of God's kingdom. So, even though this scribe is not yet a disciple, he approves of Jesus' teaching, and he approves of Jesus, who the Gospels continually state, taught with authority. And I think that teaching with authority has had influence on this scribe. So, what does this passage say to us today? I think, I mean, we can easily dissect the great commandment into three applications for, for us. The, those applications are belief in one God, wholehearted devotion to God, or, or love of God, if you will, and, and lastly, love of neighbor. Let's take these. Uh, belief in one God. Now, why our culture may not struggle with the polytheism that was dominant of the surrounding nations of Israel throughout the Old and the New Testament, including the Greek and Roman culture in the first century, we do see another form of polytheism in the, today in the form of pluralism. And, and by that I mean the idea that whatever one believes is okay. There are not multiple pathways. The Shema says God is one. There is one God. And in our Christianity, our faith lies in the unique manifestation of God and Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, our second application is wholehearted devotion to God or, or loving God. What does it mean to love God? Now, I think loving God first starts with accepting God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19 states that we love because he first loved us. And I don't think we can effectively obey this great commandment without understanding and embracing how much we are first loved by God. So when I was 20 years old, I moved to Los Angeles, California to further my education at Cal State, the Dominguez Hills, and I moved early in the summer that year, and I lived with my friend John. John was uh, from Brooklyn, and he was Jewish, and he met Christ uh, through Campus Crusade uh, at USC. And John and I had met the previous summer when we both traveled with Continental Ministries, and that next summer, John was subletting an apartment from some crew staffers, and I moved in and shared rent with him for a couple months. And it was kind of a tumultuous summer for me, uh, which ultimately led to me to, to decide not to attend Cal State, but rather to, to move to Austin, Texas, where I ultimately uh, joined the full-time music ministry. Anyway, toward the end of that summer, before I moved, one evening John returned from visiting with a, another friend who was a friend from Crew, and John made a comment to me. His comment was, you know, Kurt, it occurred to me tonight that one thing about our relationship that bothers me is that, that we live in the same apartment, but we never talk to each other about the Lord. And, and John was right. I was at a place in my walk that summer where there really wasn't much growth happening in me, and I really didn't have much to say. I was more focused on the circumstances and, and trying to overcome some things in my life rather than what God was doing in me through those things. Now, fortunately, that didn't last long. I, I was about to embark on some pretty significant spiritual growth in the years that follow, but, but I'll never forget John's poignant statement. You see, I didn't talk about God much that summer because I didn't have much to say. I had faith. I, I had a relationship, but not much was happening in that relationship. So how about you? You know, if you love someone, 
You want to be in a relationship with them, right? You, you want to talk to them every day. And when you talk to others, you want to talk about the one whom you love. They, they're the essential person in your life, and you, you can't help but talk about them. So, a similar question to the one my friend John raised. How much do you talk to, say, your spouse, if you're married, or whoever the person in your life that you're closest to, how much do you talk about God? Do you talk about what God is doing in your life? You talk about what you're learning from God, what you're praying for, maybe even what your frustrations are. Is there something to talk about? You, you may say in, in response to the great commandments call to love God, yes, I love him. Great. Tell me about the relationship with the one you love. This is where I wrote a little note in my sermon to pause and maybe let you sit with that question, those questions for a bit. Maybe let the discomfort exist. You see, the thing about a question like this is if you're watching with someone who's close to you, say your spouse, your friends, or whatever, you're going to have to look them in the eye later and either acknowledge that you do or don't talk about your relationship with God. Or you can try to forget that this awkward moment ever happened. Uh, but I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit's not going to let you do that. To love someone means to be in relationship with them. And to be in relationship means that there's some kind of dynamic to the relationship. There, there, there's activity. The, the relationship isn't just positional or transactional. It's dynamic. And it, and it gives you something to talk about. Scott McKnight states in his book, The Jesus Creed, that when we genuinely love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our mind, with all our strength, this sacred love will transform our speech, convert our actions, and inspire our worship. Now the last application is love of neighbor. Now to love our neighbors well or right, we first have to love God. But, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing because to love God, we also must love our neighbors. We, we determined that earlier. So I started this morning asking about conflict because this exchange between Jesus and this scribe becomes itself an, an illustration of the great commandment. Commentator Fiend Perkins states that at the end of all this disputing between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus and his particular scribe are able to transcend the party strife cross the dividing line of hostility, if you will, and confess a common faith. Because they agree that God is one, they join together in the conviction that there, are no, that there is no greater commandment than to love God and neighbors. And when they do this, they're able to treat each other as neighbors. You see that? Jesus and the, and the scribe, they've stepped away from this whole us versus them category or mentality. Their, their mutual affirmation is the island of reconciliation and the sea of hostility that exists throughout chapter 12. The scribe recognizes Jesus as a great teacher. Jesus recognizes the scribe as moving toward the kingdom. And verse 34 concludes that this silences the debate. So, as we've already seen, I think the specifics of love and neighbor are best defined in Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, when, when that other scribe in Luke 10 asked the question of who is my neighbor, I'm not sure he was ready for the answer Jesus would give him. Are we ready for that answer? You know, we're not sure exactly when, but ultimately we would like to offer you another way to take a deeper dive into answering that question. Now, it may not be this spring, but at some point, 
uh, in our community gatherings, adult Christian formation class, we, we would like to continue to take a look at our ECC touchstone of presence by looking at what it really means to love our neighbors through a study that's called 12 Neighbors. This is a series of films produced by a Canadian tech executive and social entrepreneur, Marcel Lebrun. And I think it will inspire us to think differently about the Great Commandment. Now, Pastor Stacy uh, sent an email last week providing a link to access this series and others through Right Now Media for you to watch those videos now if you want, if you want to choose to do that. Now, obviously, one of the other ways that we and other churches are loving our neighbors in these current days is, is by social distancing. Not meeting in large groups and flattening the curve as it is. It's the loving thing to do right now. And the pastors and the staff and the leadership of ECC are focused on the best ways that we can love our neighbors during these unprecedented times. And you're going to hear more about that as these days unfold. Things are happening. So the scribe in our passage today agrees with Jesus, but the passage doesn't tell us that the scribe fully gets it. He doesn't confess Christ as Lord in this passage. Now, in my idealistic mind, I'd like to think like, that like many of the Pharisees, who by the time we get to Acts 15, have come to faith after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, perhaps this scribe, who wasn't far from the kingdom of God here in Mark 12, Maybe he also found the kingdom of God in Jesus by the time we get to Acts 15. Maybe you're watching and you have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you've known Christ for decades, but you feel that your life lacks vision or purpose. You know that more often than not, you're not far from the kingdom of God in terms of your actions and your priorities. Perhaps when I pose that question, you say you love him, great. Tell me about the relationship with the one you love. And perhaps that question has convicted you that, that your relationship really hasn't been a priority. Perhaps your response might be, I can't answer your question. I don't have much to say. To that I say, first off, that there's grace. There's grace. Jesus offers us hope for our own lives. And it's what you were made for. It's what all of us were made for. Relationship with God and community with one another. The former ECC president, Gary Walter, used to sum it up this way, and I'm still, I'm hard-pressed to find a better way to say it. He said, God knows you. He loves you. And he created you for a relationship with him. Now, maybe you're watching today, and you do not yet know Christ as your Savior. And this talk of Loving God and loving others, it sounds good, but it's not something you've ever experienced. Maybe like described, you, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You, you're watching this morning, today, or you're curious. You know, I read something the other day that struck me, and I, again from, from Fiend Perkins. Christianity is not a moral system that surpasses the morality of other religions. Christianity's faith lies in the unique manifestation of God in Jesus. Christianity's faith lies in the unique manifestation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, being a Christian isn't about that if you proclaim Christ, you're going to do life better than everyone else. It's about a relationship that enables us to love God and love others. And we stated that to first to love God, we have to first accept 
his love for us. And I think initially that means understanding that he loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus. Jesus, who took on flesh, became incarnate, lived a sinless life, went to the cross on our behalf to die for us, was raised from the dead to make a way for us to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled within God's kingdom. Christianity is about a relationship that begins with acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You know, Romans 10, 9, I think, distills it down as simply as any verse in the Bible. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, it takes faith to do that. Faith that Jesus is the unique manifestation of God. God who took on flesh to die for you and rose victorious so that you can have an abundant life now and eternal life and be a part of his kingdom. I want to lead us in prayer in closing. So would you, wherever you are, would you just bow your head and, and pray with me? So let's pray. You know, prayer is just talking to God. There's nothing magic about the words of prayer. The words are really just an expression of our faith. So if you're watching this morning and, you, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, believe that he died for you and rose again, and, and you want to, you can repeat these words after me. Very simple. God, I confess my need for a Savior. And Jesus, I believe that you are God who took on flesh to die for me and that you rose again, paying the price for my sin and making a way for me to have a relationship with you. I confess you as Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for, by your grace, through faith, that we are saved. And Lord, we thank you for new life in Christ and for salvation. You are worthy to be praised. Amen. If you're watching this morning and you prayed that prayer for the first time, um, I would love for you to let us know. You can reach out to me, Pastor Stacy or Pastor Jordan. All of our emails can be found, our, our contact information at our website, ecclife.net. God bless you. Amen.